This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast, which explores the ways in which people experience different social identities. My guest for this episode is Sabine Dupu, who is an assistant dean of students at Mount Wachusett Community College. I invited her on the podcast to talk about how she experienced living in a shelter many years ago as a Haitian American woman who was also a single mom. I was curious to know if there were any specific supports she received and what was lacking, if anything, in her experience. We ended up talking about a lot more than her experience at the shelter, however. Take a listen. back with another great guest um happy to have bibin with me bibin what's going on <laughs> gonna do that <laughs> surprise that's when you know your fam <laughs> yeah bibin does anybody call you bibin in the office my, my family no oh no i wouldn't dare <laughs> no Anyway, it's actually Sabine in the workplace. I now introduce myself in my very Haitian way name. All right, right on. So uh, Sabine and I go way back, way, way back to Morris Street days. Morris Street, the Morris Street gang. And then um, Sabine moved to Florida. And then we reconnected through a mutual friend who actually, we reconnected through her cousin. Mm hmm. When I was working at Quinsigamon Community College. And anyway, I reached out to Sabine to come on the podcast because she has a story to tell. And I'm not talking about Biggie Smalls. You get the reference and got a story to tell. No, I do. (laughs) I love some Biggie. Yep, yep. So she has a story to tell. It's actually really inspiring. I I think a movie could probably be made about this woman's life. She's doing great things. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. Thank you so much. I feel like I reached celebrity status now that I'm on your podcast. (laughs) Yes, you are. You already were a celebrity. what, What are you up to now? Oh, the list is long. Um, it, so in my professional career, I'm an assistant dean of students at a community college uh-huh. within that role. So that means I work with students in student conduct. I oversee the food pantry at the community college. We have two, one on the main campus, satellite campus. Um, I'm also the campus director for the satellite campus. That means I see all the operations that happen on that campus. <laughs> Again, there's so much on the personal level. I am a volunteer at a shelter. I'm a volunteer at a food pantry. I'm a volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club. Whew. I'm a mother. All right. <laughs> and you got a lot going on. I do. I do. Doing really well professionally. And where do you work, Sabine? So I work at Mount Wachusett Community College in Lemonster, Mass. All right. Uh, so many years ago, now almost 10 years ago, which is a shock, 
Sabine and I worked together at Quintigaman Community College. Um, and prior to working together, I helped her enroll at QCC and then she just took the place over gradually. Oh, um, <laughs> she came in as a student, felt the place out literally for like a few days. And then all of a sudden it was just like, Oh, wow. Sabine. Everything is has to change. Shop. Yeah. Sabine is running the shop. Okay. And, um, before I get into asking you questions about your meteoric rise, Sabine, how do you identify? Um, as a Haitian American woman. And you also mentioned that you're a mom, yes? Yes. How many children do you have? So I have two, one in-house. And how old are they? 19 and 15. Okay. And you currently live in Central Mass. We're not going to specify where. I don't want anybody coming for you. Yeah, that's okay. Yes, I'm in Central Mass. All right. And also, the last thing is, do you also identify as first generation? I do. Okay, so you were, like, among the first in your family to earn a college degree? No, but first to be born in America. I got you. Okay, all right. So when I met you 15 years ago, um, you were living in a shelter at the time. I remember yes. this. Did We we met up at um, Men's Walk for lunch, right? We did. We did. Um, and I had to take a bus to get there. Bomb Chinese what, what, food. Yeah, where, where the bus wasn't that great at the time, 15 yeah. years ago, yeah, where yeah. you had to wait every four hours for that one bus to run. Worcester Transit, man. Woo! I mean, it's come a long way. They've evolved, for sure. I'm happy to hear that. So, when you were at the shelter, did they meet your needs as a first-generation Haitian-American woman who was also a single mom? Yes and no. Yes in ways of helping those in need who are looking to get back on their feet in self-sufficiency. But no, in a lot of ways, and I think they were limited based on the resources that were provided to them through the state, um, what was given. So if you think about it in this particular shelter was two buildings. And if my math is correct, 12 units per building. So we're talking, talking about 24 units. You multiply that by two, 48 families because there were two families per unit. Okay. Um, so they had uh, a pantry in the basement as well, where it was limited with how much diapers were available, food for children, what women may have needed in terms of clothes and personal hygiene items. Because at the time you're living off of DTA benefits, um, food stamps, which is now identified as SNAP benefits. It, It was hard. So while you're stretching a dollar with what you have, they were very limited in what they could provide as well to the families that live there. I think information was also scarce, too. And when I say that, meaning if you didn't ask, no one really told you. Mm. Um, and you can't ask about something if you don't even know what to ask for. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so that's the other piece that falls under that, which was really, really a challenge. And in terms of being there, there was a lot of different families. So you had a lot, majority of the families, there were single mothers with one or more children um, in the room. Yeah. Again, so I mean, two families per unit, two bedrooms. So you were in a bedroom with your entire family. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's, and again, so it just depended on the resources. The resources were there, but it was more of how do I access it? So it's a little bit about being in education. We always expect people to know the terminology or speak the jargon. Yeah. When in reality, they don't, where it's the 
the responsibility of that particular individual who works in that realm to be able to share that information with you. And that didn't really happen all the time at the shelter. So I heard you say that you were in the shelter with a lot of other single moms. Uh, Were there women there who didn't have children? Were there men? And also, what was the composition of the families in there from a racial and ethnic standpoint? Um, So it was all women who had children. That's um, the shelter was dedicated to at the time. In terms of the racial, the ratio there, I would say the majority of people who were in the buildings were people of color, for sure. There were white families, but, but very, very little, not many. Okay. All right. What about the employees in the building? Were they folks of color, white? Was it a mix? There was a mix, but majority of them were people of color. So when I entered into the shelter, the director at the time identified as a white woman. Um, she was there for a short period of time in a, a Latina woman took over as the director, who is still the director now because she and I work very closely together. The caseworkers and the staff who stayed overnight and everything, they were people of color as well. People from the area who understood some of them experienced living in a shelter. So there was more compassion and empathy and sympathy there because they understood and knew what it was like to kind of go through the system. The staff who was just there to do the overseeing of the shelter, these are the people who were sharing information with now, you. Now, when you say they understood, how did you know they understood? Did they explicitly say things to lead you to realize like, okay, these people get it? Was it in action? Like, Explain how they demonstrated their understanding. They they would share their experience and what shelter they lived at for a while and how they came up and got housing and got a car um, and everything else. So they were open about their experiences. And again, this is just staff who are not considered caseworkers. So these staff members were more relatable to um, that's where I got a lot of my information from. Mm. <laughs> not my caseworkers. Can not- you talk about that? Like, so what's the difference between the caseworker role and the staff that you're talking about? The caseworker is really supposed to be your link to the resources in the area. Okay. They're supposed to do a checklist for you. They're supposed to tell you what you really need to do or guide you in that direction per se. Staff was more of to make sure you're safe in the building. Yeah. Um, you're you're meeting the the rules and regulations and policies and requirements of being in the shelter, meaning you're not going you're not out past curfew. You're signing in and out of the building, you're within your unit, et cetera, et cetera. That was really the role of staff. And if you had a question, you needed to use a phone or you needed to make a copy in the office, that was their role. But again, they were so personable. Yeah. If you asked them a specific question, they had no problem of being open and honest with you and saying, no, that doesn't sound about right. This is what you really should do. So they put in a lot of footwork for a lot of us members who were living in the units. Did you vibe with your caseworker? The first caseworker I had, because that was like a revolving door. So the first caseworker I had, yes. Others after that, not so much. I met with them because that was part of the requirements in order to stay in the shelter. At times, I really felt like I was on my own. Mm, Why didn't you vibe with them? Why didn't you vibe with them? In in my opinion, if I'm recollecting my, my experience well, I don't think I vibed with them because I don't think they understood. I think we were all put... In, in one box and judged based on maybe one person's experience. So if all of you are in a shelter, you didn't make wise choices in life. Um, 
right? And we were treated that way, how we were spoken to, um, how we were brushed off, not acknowledged. Um, there were times I didn't feel as though I was as important or a priority for my caseworker. And, and again, I'm an outside, well, not an outsider looking in. I think at the time I'm in survival mode. Sure. So I can't understand or relate to maybe where the caseworker is coming from. Maybe they have 50 cases and it's overwhelming for them. Yeah. Now in my career and as much as I've grown as a person, I can understand that now. But then I did not because it was more of well, what about me? I follow. And how did your caseworker identify? You you had a few of them. So take me through how they identified. Yeah. So the first one was a, was a black woman for sure. Um, the others were white women. Okay. And do you feel like the barrier could have been coming from you and seeing a white woman and having preconceived notions or no, Stena, they were very condescending. What made you feel so disconnected from them? They were condescending. Okay. For sure. And, you know, some people say it's not about how they said it. It's what they said. It was both. (laughs) I I received both. Um, It was more of what they said, how they said it, and the the eye roll. And again, you're thinking it's personal and it's just you, but then you realize they're treating everyone like that. Understood. Meanwhile, you connected more with the staff. And I'm just wondering what the pay difference is for a staff person working at the shelter and a caseworker. So now that I'm cool with a lot of with some of the members, the pay is significantly different. Hold on. Staff get paid more? No, they do not. I, I was assuming that's the case. Oh, no, they do not. Um, so, and, and I know that now not understanding then, because in my head, again, survival mode, at least you're getting a check, Yeah, getting $267 a month. Yeah. I'm sure I can make that in a week. <laughs> um, so Hold on. It, did you just say you were getting $267 a month as a benefit? Correct. My a month, answer. not a week. A month. Wow. Okay. It was emergency funds because, so I am a domestic violence survivor. Mm. I went into an emergency shelter. So the way the shelter system works in the state of Massachusetts, then we're talking about 15 years ago. So it may have changed now. I recall going to the DTA office in Boston um, at the time, which was identified as Dudley. And what they do is in the state of Massachusetts, wherever there's availability in the shelters in the state, that's where you go. That's how I ended up in central Massachusetts in a Worcester. I didn't know anything about a Worcester, not knowing it was in Worcester. And with that, that's how they calculate your emergency benefits. Do you have a steady income coming in? Are you paying? So it was all these different factors on how they did it at the time. And another benefit that you got um, as a result of being in the shelter was probably a full Pell Grant to go to Quinsig. Did you have to pay much to go to Quinsig? I did not. So I didn't go to Quinsig when I was in the shelter. Yeah. I, I was working jobs. So I only had my high school diploma at the time. Okay. And I was in the shelter. So there's a couple of stories connected to that. I was only in the shelter for four months yeah. because I was constantly on the grind, just trying to figure out if I'm making $267 a month, I could probably make that in a week if I just got a job. Yeah. Um, again, in survival mode, right? It's incredible what your brain does. I ended up hitting the beat in, in Worcester and we were talking about Central Mass. The transportation was not great at the time. The bus didn't run on Sundays after six o'clock, I think. Yeah. At the time. 
Um, so hitting the beat, making sure I was going out, finding jobs because I had great customer service skills, people skills, et cetera, et cetera, with a high school diploma, but I was always the first person on the chopping block. Uh. Um, as great as I may have been at my job, but I didn't have that piece of document to support me in that role that I was doing. Yeah. So I was laid off from one job, went to a second job. And I said, if I ever, if I get laid off, I'm going back to school. Yeah. Got laid off at my second job on my birthday. Yeah. That was the greatest gift I ever received. Um, I made sure I kept my promise to myself. And that's what led me to go to Quincy. But at that time, I went from the shelter to a transitional housing program at in the Valley. Yeah. I lived there for about eight to nine months and entered into a MEOP program through a grant through the state. and ended up getting my own apartment. Once I entered that apartment... I learned the bus system. I learned the Spanish taxi at the time to get yeah, to school, yeah. pay my $10. Um, and that's how I ended up at Quinsick. But yes, to answer your question, um, I, I had the Pell Grant. I applied for scholarships. I did everything I needed to do to come out with my associate's degree without owing anything. And from the associate's degree, you went on to get your bachelor's degree and then from your bachelor's degree to your master's degree and you and assistant dean now, you're running a whole (laughs) campus. Correct. Correct. (laughs) When I tell y'all meteoric rise, I am not playing. (laughs) I was hungry. I was hungry. I was passionate. And and that was important for me. But everything, I got to give props to going to Quincy. And getting my associate's degree. So my dad was an educator in the Boston public school system for close to a little over 20 years. Yeah. My mother worked in the healthcare profession as well. I never wanted to be a teacher. I never wanted to work in the healthcare field. And so working as a work study at Quinsig, I said to myself, oh my God, education. I was like, wow. Um, because I always thought education was about learning and teaching. Yeah. I did not know that Working in education, you can save lives. Yes. I did not know that you can do that. And that was the purpose of that. That's what made me fall in love with education. That's what opened my eyes to say, this is your passion. This is where you belong because you can help people here. And especially community colleges. Uh, That's why I I was so drawn to working at Quinsig and stayed there for so long because it felt like I was really helping people. Uh, and I know you're doing that, and I am so moved to hear about what you're doing with the food pantry at Mount Wachusett. Can you talk a little bit about that? So at Mount Wachusett, there's a food pantry on the main campus that opened up about a little over five years ago. In turn, with that on the satellite campus, there wasn't a, a food pantry there. So I took the initiative to work very closely with those who run the one on the main campus to um, build and open one on the satellite campus. It's a smaller one, but still just as functional. Now, this upcoming fall, I will oversee both. So off campus and on campus. This food pantry is dedicated to all students who identify as current students on the campus throughout the institution and non-credit students as well. Our goal is to make sure that we're feeding as many families and students throughout the community who attend the college, but also at a level where if you're here in need of food, what else do you need help with? Yeah. And that's also important. So we have great programs that we're, we're connecting students with um, Luck that is in the area, Mock, 
Um, and these are all organizations that help families throughout that community. And, and it's really special because we have food lockers. So the food lockers is so we're not inconveniencing a student. Sure. So if a campus closes out four o'clock in the afternoon, for a perfect example, that student says, well, I can't get there at four. No problem. We fill in the food lockers. We're going to send you a pin code. You receive your pin code. You come in, you punch in the pin code, you get your food, you go home, you feed yourself and your family. Um, because food shouldn't have to be based on what's convenient for others. It has to just work for you. And that's really important, feeding families. It, it, food pantries is what saved my life Yeah. as a student. There were nights where I'm studying and I was hungry. Yeah, yeah. I have a two, three-year-old, and, and I didn't know how I was going to feed her that night. So places like Pernet um, Family, which is out on Millbury Street, that's where I got diapers. Because I didn't have enough money to go get diapers. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's where I got my food. And even if it was just mac and cheese and I was able to feed myself and my daughter that night, I was able to focus and study and, and pass my test the next day. So little do people realize when, when students are in school, not even at a community college level, at four years too. Yeah. These are necessities that, that contribute to student success. And what better person to run this than you? You get it clearly throughout this interview. <laughs> you have demonstrated that you understand this experience because you've been through it. You've been through the fire to the limit and to the wall. Listen, the whole Shaka Khan, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying Shaka Khan and not the other person. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. And so I mentioned earlier, you work at Mount Wachusett Community College. You've been there for three years. And prior to this call, you were talking about all the different things that you're doing and also just how you feel so supported by one uh, Jason Zaleski, otherwise known as White Jay-Z. Yes. <laughs> I forgot. I didn't know you knew him by that. Yes, that's Jay-Z. Oh, I would love to talk about Jay-Z. What, what was so great, you know, sometimes as a woman of color who's young, it, you get in your own way. Sometimes you like there's days I know I'm great. There's other days I question myself and what I'm doing. Jason saw something in me at the time that I don't think I saw. But I know that when we first started working together, I asked for his trust. Um, I asked for autonomy because if you're hiring me for this job, you need to trust me to do the job. But trust and know I will come to you and we will communicate. Yeah. Um, and, and so as my direct supervisor, we have a partnership yeah. and we work well together and he trusts the work that I do. He knows my backstory without judgment. Um, and that has been an incredible experience these past three years. Um, I always share with people, I have more good days than bad days, but he always finds a way to make it better. Mm. And this is a white dude who yeah. is empowering you in these yep. specific ways. What would you say specifically he does that helps you feel a sense of belonging at Mount Wachusett? Which, by the way, from a staff standpoint, I also understand that it's not very racially diverse. So what are the active ways that he uh, helps you feel a sense of belonging there? His level of communication style, he listens and hears you and and delivers. You know what I mean? He won't steer you any other direction. I think his honesty and his integrity yeah. as a person yeah. matters. He's been through his own life experiences as well. So I think he takes his management style to a personal level. Um, if I need a mental health 
day to myself and I need that break, he gets it and he's ready to jump in. Okay, what do you need? And I think because he treats me that way, in turn, I try to give him the same. Mm, all right. So when I see that he's a, 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 to the level of burnout, Jay-Z, how can I jump in? What do you need? Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's why we work so well together. But he's there for his people. And so Jay-Z doesn't come at you like, hey, girl, like he doesn't try to be down in communicating with you. No, he's, he's not extra with it. No, he's himself. All right. I say that because people often feel as though in order to connect with people of color, they have to put on an act to yeah. connect. And it's like, it's not that serious. You just have to know when to ask me how I'm doing and how to have the conversation. But I don't need the specific dap. Uh, <laughs> you don't know how many times I've had awkward dap with white men. I'm like, bro, stop. You know, you don't dap anybody else. No, I don't. I've never felt with him, I needed a code switch. Yeah. And I don't think he's ever needed to feel the need to code switch with me. Yeah. Um, But also the kind of person I am, if you're not yourself, you're not your true authentic self, you and I can't be cool. Manager or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think I've made that very clear very early on in our partnership. And so when he's himself, he's relatable. He gets it. He checks in. He pays attention. He asks questions, but he also tells you, I'm not a mind reader. If you don't come to me and tell me you need these things, I can't help you. Right on, Jason. Good job. <laughs> I hope you listen to this podcast and share it. You mentioned code switching. There's a way that we express ourselves that isn't common in the workplace. Do you ever feel self-conscious about how you vibe versus those around you in the workplace? Now, no, before, yes. Before it was important how people viewed me, how I connected with them. Did I sound like them? Do they get me? Et cetera, et cetera. Now I think in my career and growing and experiences I've gone through professionally, I, I show people my true authenticity because I want you to see what you're, what you see is what you're going to get. Yeah. And I want you to understand that and be comfortable with that. And if you're not comfortable, that's on you. That's not on me because I'm mm. not going to change for you. Mm. There was a while in my career where I was doing things to make other people comfortable. And I want to say about four years ago, I snapped out of that. And I, not even four years ago, it really kind of started eight years ago when I cut my hair off. All right. Where I am no longer making myself uncomfortable to make others comfortable. Mm. I'm not doing that anymore. I remember when you cut your hair. And when I cut my hair, it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah. And I got to tell you, when I cut my hair, I've never felt more freer. Mm. I never felt more prettier. Yeah. Like I felt like I was the most gorgeous woman in the world. And you rock it. And I loved it. And my hair was so short. I grew it out a little bit. I have like an inch or two of hair and I'm like, oh my God, this is too much. But my hair started off that journey for me. And then, like I was mentioning four years ago, in terms of being in a room with people and how I spoke, I was like, no, forget that. I'm going to be me. Yeah. You either love it or you hate it. Yeah. But that's going to be your choice because this is how it's going to be. And that's it. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. And um, you are doing really well. You are prospering. You will continue to thrive. I'm telling y'all, at some point, don't be surprised if you see Sabine on TV. Oh, um, gosh. Stumping. I'm, I'm serious. I see you in government at some point. Straight up. 
I might be too honest to work in the government. We need more honesty in government. I might not be the right person. Nah, nah, nope. I can see it. It's going to happen. We're going to manifest that together. And then I'll bring you back on the podcast and you can talk about what it's like being in government as a first generation Haitian American woman. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's powerful stuff. That's powerful stuff from your mouth to the higher powers ears. Sabine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and having this conversation and enlightening us about your journey and dropping some nuggets for people to consider. And I appreciate you. You're the one who told me, stop paying my dues. You said that to me right before you left QCC. And because I was in, I shared with you, I was sad. You knew I was sad at the time of you yep. leaving because we were like the only two people of color really in the room. Yep, yep, yep. But because of our connection and you walked away and you said, listen, stop paying the dues. And up until this day, how many years later, I, I take that to heart. One of my takeaways from this conversation is that Sabine was fortunate to receive support from staff at her shelter who walked in her shoes. As mostly women of color, they could relate to her and vice versa. She felt seen by them. Similarly, years later at Mount Wachusett, even though her supervisor is a white man, she feels a sense of belonging there because he sees her, understands her needs because he's paying attention and is proactive in supporting her. Special thanks to Eric Schultz, an instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy, who produced a theme song for this podcast. Sound editing is handled by Stena Productions, a.k.a. me. Lastly, if you're feeling the content, please follow the podcast on Instagram and Spotify at identity underscore n underscore me. Until the next episode of Identity and Me, keep reflecting. Identity and me Identity and me